I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Gadigal people of the Eonora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. That's when I suppose the alarm bell clicked that I could still work in wine, still work with venues, um, but not have to do all the late nights and all those things that come um, with being a SOM or working as a restaurant manager. And from there, it kind of naturally evolved. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Andrew Jamison is the owner and operator of Andrew Jamison Wine Merchants. His business represents independent producers from all around Australia who blend trailblazing and tradition. As far as Australian wine distribution goes, he has a portfolio of gems. Hey, AJ, thanks for joining me. Hey, g'day, Shante. How are you? I'm really well. Thanks for making some time in your busy schedule. As far as people go, you are probably one of the busiest, busiest that has so much going on all at one time, multiple balls in the air. So I appreciate you taking five seconds to sit down. <laughs> Not a problem at all. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. I'm uh, a big fan of the podcast and, um, yeah, happy to be here. Hope I can uh, contribute something. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it because the only other kind of um, distributor I've had on is the wonderful Andrew Gard. Um, and you guys, you know, operate completely different businesses, but both do an amazing job. And I thought this is a great opportunity to kind of talk a little bit about, especially from someone that has done um, quite a lot in terms of your career and, and the different roles that you've had on. And, you know, what the plate, the role that you take on is such an integral role for getting great wines, you know, in front of people in restaurants, but also taking care of, of the producers themselves. So I want to start right at the early stages. What kind of began the wine journey for you? Um, I grew up in the Hunter Valley. Um, my, we, we moved around with my dad's job, um, who worked in the TAFE system and landed in, yeah, just outside of, um, of Cessnock. Um, and while we had no ties to wine, uh, whenever family would come and visit or friends, and naturally we'd be scooting off to cellar doors and that kind of thing. Um, I was uh, a pretty outdoorsy kid, so I was always sort of kicking a footy out the front of the cellar door. I've got many memories of um, doing that at the front of Mount Pleasant. Um, I had, yeah, and uh, parents weren't big drinkers, but uh, one of my aunties in particular was. Um, and a few times I recall her explaining to me, that, you know, there was different grape varieties and there were like types of apples and there was a bit more to it than just a drink. Um, not much booze was consumed in our house, you know. So uh, apart from at Christmas time and my auntie kind of led the charge there and she really loved loves wine. Um, but that was always something I was a little bit curious about. Um, big food culture in our house. Um, my mum is an amazing cook uh, and that was a really strong part of, I suppose, her way of sharing and connecting and sort of hospitality on the whole. She never came from a hospitality background but being Malaysian-Chinese, um, she yeah, would always cook a really diverse mix of foods, I suppose, and sort of the coming together around the table um, was always a really, I suppose, fond memory for me and um, something that my sister and I still, you know, take pretty seriously, I suppose, and, and do love our food. And um, as I got older and more curious, uh, the wine thing sort of came around as I entered hospitality sort of in my teenage years. Um, yeah. Uh, it's so nice to hear that you had kind of an outdoor upbringing, but then also you got to experience kind of good cuisine in your household. That's the kind of the apex, I think, um, in terms of, of having, you know, a well-rounded childhood. That sounds awesome. Uh, you know, what kind of what kind of cuisine do your parents make? 
Uh, my dad is uh, from the country, uh, is actually from Cowra, so it was always uh, two different cuisines on the table. Mum um, immigrated out to Australia from, uh, from Malaysia when she was in her mid-20s, um, but still uh, cooks a lot or primarily, pretty much only cooks Asian food for herself. So there was always Asian food on the table and Western food on the table. Um, dad couldn't stand chilli. Mum loves the stuff. So I was really lucky, I suppose, to have uh, options for both um, all the time. And, and it wasn't uh, work. the amount of food she would cook, I suppose, was indicative of having two sort of whole set different meals on the table. Um, I was pretty portly as a kid, and that was, I suppose, because mum's, mum's food was so good. And I, I do love food and, and still do. Um, but yeah, it was always a really diverse mix of things. And yeah, it was very lucky to be exposed to that. That's so cool. I mean, the first time I think I met you ever, I was like half the time not listening to what you're saying because I was trying to put together, you know, your face shape and then also working out where your blue eyes came from and just kind of going, is there a little bit of Asian in this guy? You know, and I, I probably wasn't even responding to you at all. I was just kind of trying to work it out, which is sometimes what people do with me as well. And then finally we got down to it and you told me your background. And I was like, oh, great. Now that we've solved that, I can actually pay attention to what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, look, it's, um, growing up in a place like the Hunter was pretty interesting, being part Asian. Um, the Hunter's a pretty... Uh, interesting place, I suppose, um, and it wasn't very multicultural back then. I remember that we went to um, to Mount View High School for a few years. We've actually moved back to Sydney when I was about sixteen, but for the first two years, I think there was about fifteen hundred kids at the school, and there was three of them that were Asian, and it was um, my sister and I, um, and another guy called David Ho, whose parents actually owned the local Chinese takeaway shop, so he was a bit of a celebrity in the school, but. Um, Cessnock's a rough town if you've ever had the pleasure of being there, which I know you have. <laughs> Interesting part of the world. Well, I reckon you're probably better for it. You survived and to these days it's uh, it's like a wild card, right? Like it's such a blessing to have um, some gorgeous culture that you carry with you, but sometimes it is a little um, bit of a rocky road at the start when you just want to fit in and just want to be the absolute regular kid, right? Yeah, all, all part of it, all character building, I suppose. <laughs> So what what kind of led you into your your aunt, you know, bless your aunt, had a little bit of a, a taste for wine. When did you kind of make a decision? Was it out of school or, or later down the track where you kind of fell into the hospitality scene? Yeah, I got into um, hospitality when I was back in Sydney and I was sort of pretty lucky to work in what was a, a pretty uh, well-established and successful um, local Italian cafe in the inner west. Um, and it was a really uh, family business with two young sons who were, uh, you know, young, cool go-getter types that had, you know, hotel up Vespers and Alfa Romeos and stuff and their mum in the kitchen. Um, and I think I was washing dishes from the age of about 14. Um, but I got to learn a lot of her uh, cooking techniques and recipes and I still make, you know, um, my ragu or bolognese today to that same recipe or you know, even the most basic tomato sauce or pickles or things like that. Um, but that was uh, to see these guys, they were – it was a, you know, they were kind of one of them was kind of a rock star in a way. He was always um, out and about, man of the town kind of thing. You know, nineteen twenty, and I suppose I was a little bit, uh, God, what's the word? Envious of you know this guy who was cool and he'd, you know roll around the floor on this busy cafe that sort of turned into a restaurant a few nights a week. And I was like, I want to be like him, um, <laughs> you know, naive teenage way. Um, but really. I suppose the food bug was already in my system through, you know, mum and uh, that, all those great memories of family meals and learning to cook from my mum, which I still do to this day. 
um, trying to get all the recipes out of her head as she gets older. Uh, but then, yeah, it was just a, a really – it was a great alternative, alternative to working at Macca's, which, you know, a lot of kids I went to school did or working in the local fish and chip shop, but there was a bit more to it. And from there, I yeah, through end of high school and, and uh, into – just before I went to uni, I um, actually managed to find a way to get down to the snow. I was really keen on snowboarding and did for many years and um, moved down to Threadbow at the age of, I think, 19 or 20 um, and was working in the Alpine Hotel there in, in, in the, the Cascades restaurant uh, and then fortunately uh, managed to score a job over in Salt Lake City um, working in a pretty well-established restaurant that uh, I'm pretty sure it's still there to this day, the Airy in Snowbird. Uh, and uh, under the guidance of a guy called Frederick Barbier, who I think is still the uh, F&B director for Snowbird Resort, which is you know one of the one of the great North American ski resorts. Um, I think he was from Bordeaux, but uh, we were just servers in this you know higher end, I suppose, fine dining restaurant, and we got to see a lot of great wine. And I knew the difference between you know Shiraz and Pinot and and the basic bits, um, but didn't know much about it or any sort of specific level but I you know got to try some really great things there and you know got to try bottles of wine that were a thousand dollars off a wine list which is you know as a 22 year old broke kid um working in restaurants to subsidize a snowboarding habit on the other side of the world was was a pretty great experience um and then from there I came back to Australia and actually as I entered uni mature age I actually enrolled in a uh I think it was an introduction to wine or an introduction to viticulture course at uh, Sydney Wine Academy, uh, Clive Hartley, which is now the West Ed, uh, the Sydney Wine Academy um, that runs all the West Ed out at Ride, Tafe and Cordon Bleu. And, yeah, met some amazing people there and learned a lot about wine. Um, some of my oldest friends I met there, people like Pippi Anderson was actually on that course. She was a pastry chef at uh, Jonah's at the time, um, but getting into wine also. And got a job at a restaurant in town um, at the Malaya down at King Street Wharf, sort of naturally gravitated towards an Asian restaurant, um, but had dropped out of uni and was actually studying, got into the West Het system and started studying wine uh, in a more serious way and realised that Hospo was a more interesting career um, than where an arts degree could potentially lead me. Well, it's certainly, yeah, it's a different path, just as a creative, I would arguably say, and um, probably... Well, I think a lot more fun, but I suppose each their own. When did you first start working as a sommelier? Uh, I God, probably would have been about 06, 07. Um, I got a job as the assistant sommelier at the Gazebo Wine Garden in Potts Point in the base of the Gazebo Hotel um, under a guy named, by the name of Clint Hillary, uh, who I think is now up in Queensland uh, with a few wholesale portfolios and doing really cool things for Sellerhand and Frank about wine. But um, he gave me my first job as a, yeah, God, it would have been about 22, 23, pretty naive, but uh, experience-wise, but, you know, could work a restaurant floor and had a pretty keen hunger to learn about wine stuff and as well as was studying on the side. And, um, you know, I think we had like 55 wines by the glass. It was the first enomatic wine system in the, in the country back then um, and served Grange by the glass, you know, certain times of the year and things like that. So it was a pretty big eye-opener to be able to try 50 wines at any given point in time. Yeah, totally amazing. What I love about all the places that kind of are on your CV and the places you've worked is a lot of them are still in operation or the groups are still in operation and they're real kind of iconic, legendary establishments. Yeah, there was um, – yeah, I was fortunate to work in a few places. I One thing that always interested me was the management side of things and hospitality. Um, 
I probably was a little bit lazy, to be honest, in the thought of doing stock takes and all that kind of stuff. Polishing glasses, this is long before the winter halters were in existence, but polishing glasses to one or two in the morning um, really didn't interest me. So I sort of bridged into a bit of management and still oversaw the wine program there for many years. And um, we did quite well and it was, it was a really cool, fun space. But it was probably one of the first places in Sydney that did wine in a really casual, serious wine in a casual setting. Um, and we we're really fortunate that there was also a big hospital hangout, especially on a Sunday or through the weeknights, because um, there was, I suppose, a lot of bargains to be had on the list. But yeah, I always had an inkling that I wanted to move more into management than just into wine, because I kind of felt like that there was a bit of a, a ceiling, a glass ceiling in wine, and didn't know how far I wanted to go. I didn't really want to work in a fine dining restaurant again. I didn't love those experiences I had um, in America, just how regimental it was when, you know, places like the Gazebo or the winery in Surrey Hills, you know, it was line out the door three nights a week and tunes blasting, people still drinking well. But, you know, we weren't pouring just great wine, but there was certainly plenty of good bottles moved, albeit in a more fun, approachable, casual setting. I really liked um, what those businesses did and, yeah, hence I stayed there for about five or six years. And then in terms of where you went from there, you kind of stayed working and I know that you were working part-time as well, moved on to Mavita and Love Tilly. When did you make the decision to, like you said, you were kind of doing bits of management, when did you make the decision to stop working in venues? Um, the wholesale thing came about as a bit of a fluke and Long story short, I was um, I was working with a bunch of producers that didn't have representation. I was buying wine from them directly because I thought they were doing some really cool things. You know, people like Sam from Polpero, um, David Lowe, who was probably the first person that really got me to do it. And it, it kind of came about fortuitously. I want to say it was an export deal that went wrong um, and it was really cheap. I won't say how cheap, but really cheap Pinot Gris. Uh, from Orange and a Shiraz from Mudgee that he made for a, a deal into China that went south and he sort of turned around to me and said, hey, would you ever consider selling this on the side? Um, and I, you know, had a bunch of contacts that were friends in hospitality and, you know, my industry peers and um, over about, I think it was nine or 12 months, we moved a container of each of this, you know, dirt cheap, I'm talking sort of 10 bucks retail, um, Pinot Grand Shiraz and, you know, got a got a cheque at the end of it and it was that's when I suppose the alarm bell clicked that I could still work in wine, still work with venues, um, but not have to do all the late nights and all those things that come um, with being a SOM or working as a restaurant manager. And from there, it kind of naturally evolved into two or three brands. One of them was the Gilberts um, out in Mudgee, um, a lot of their fruit coming from Orange as well. Um, Will, who you know very well, and I still work with to this day. I was just, just finished a week in trade with Will uh, yesterday. Um, and Sam had just moved down, Sam Coverdale um, had just moved down from Canberra um, to plant his first vineyard in Mornington, which is now Polpero Estate um, that I'm still working with. And then, yeah, it's kind of organically grown from there. Um, but realising there was a way that I could still be in the industry and in the thick of it, but, you know, work a nine to five, um, essentially nine to five hours and also have weekends to myself and get some work-life balance and whatnot back. Um, as you know, it can be pretty taxing on personal life and family time and all those things, working crazy nights and doubles on weekends. And I was, yeah, I think I kind of did my time and was pretty keen to get out. And yeah, I was pretty lucky, I suppose, how it naturally evolved that way. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it, when when it does naturally evolve, but when you kind of, there's still a huge amount of work that 
makes it all happen, but it kind of, the stars align a little bit and you think, wait a second, that maybe this is, maybe I could do this. But f- from having that kind of brainchild and then working with a couple of producers, do, did you then like hire an office space and figure like, okay, I've got to do this properly? Like how, who do you go to to ask the questions of how something like that operates? Yeah, I was lucky to have a few people that I suppose mentored me early on um, and I still call upon to this day for advice. I remember sitting down with Gardy very, very early on and sort of saying, hey, I'm going to have a go at this and what should I do and what sort of advice have you got? Um, probably one person in particular, John Baker, who had Bordeaux shippers at the time. Um, I had a bit of a pension for Bordeaux because I couldn't afford Burgundy and because I do like Cabernet. Um, but we, we used to move a fair bit of Bordeaux at some of the wine bars and, and he had, if you remember Bordeaux Shippers, he had this amazing um, portfolio of aged stuff he was buying out of, uh, out of France from Negotiants already aged. But, yeah, he was very kind to me with his time and also his cellar, um, always letting us see, uh, you know, lots of great wines that we can never afford. Still to this day, he, he does that a few times a year for us, which we're, yeah, grateful for. Um, but I was actually working out of a... Yeah, out of home. It was sort of a part-time thing. I was I got into my diploma studies for Westset, I think, in 2013 and sort of said, all right, let's sort of take this seriously. Uh, and then, yeah, had a home office in, you know, air quotes. And randomly, I want to say it was in 2014, um, an ex-Keystone employee bought a pub in Surrey Hills and the old hotel rooms upstairs were all renovated into offices. Um I'm literally sat here now on the corner of Reservoir and Commonwealth Street in Surrey Hills some almost 10 years later. Um, but, yeah, I suppose the demand for an office and a warehouse, you know, we started in a Kennard's lockup in Chatswood West because it was the cheapest storage we could find. Um, I used to jump on my Vespa from Redfern, go over there and pack orders in the morning. Um, there was no reception in there and there was certainly no Wi-Fi in there, so we couldn't work out of there. But, yeah, we sort of built up to a point, or I built up to a point in time where we could afford some, yeah, uh, third-party logistics warehousing. Yeah, sort of put everything I had into it, really. And I think we ended up with about 10 brands for the first couple of years. And, yeah, fast forward to almost nine years and we're about 25, 26 brands now. But still in the same offices, very lucky that we're in a great part of town. It's not by any means the the Taj Mahal, but it does the job. Um, And... The whole home office thing didn't quite work for me so well. I was pretty keen to get out of home and also socialise, you know, being in a sales-based role. Um, we do spend a lot of time, or myself and, and colleagues spend a lot of time, you know, on the road. And I suppose I missed that contact of always being around empl- uh, colleagues, you know, and, and customers uh, in that hospitality environment. So it was nice to sort of separate the work and home life. And, yeah, like I said, I'm still in Surrey Hills today, which is great. <laughs> The epicenter. It's, it is an amazing location, and but you, like you said, you need to be because you need to be. I think it's interesting, and I want to ask you what makes a good merchant or what makes a good distributor because you are somebody that's got a lot of face to face with not only the people you represent but the people you're selling to. Um, you're certainly not somebody that sends a lot of emails and, and isn't um, doing the hard yards. So, what do you think makes a good merchant? I think coming off a hospitality background really helps um, being able to relate to our customers and what they need, you know, both from a point of looking at their wine list or looking what's in their wine program and, and what could slot in there or, or how we can add value to their business. Um, 
you know, my job is a conduit between producers and venues, whether it's, you know, the local cafe, the pub downstairs here, through to, you know, selling you wine when you were at Key. Um, but having that, coming off that hospitality basis of just understanding what people need in their businesses or what I think could work to help them, um, I think it is something that works in our favour. Um, all of our, well, there's only three of us, three and a half is in the business, but they all come, all of us come from hospitality background. Um, Jay Mack, as you know, was, you know, head of Shangri-La for five or six years and a few other restaurants as well. Um, but yeah, being able to relate to people and being able to work in and around what they need, whether it's timing, flexibility, um, you know, customer service, last minute orders, that kind of stuff. But we're not just a sales business where I suppose we're, we're wine people first, then sales people second as maybe counterintuitive as that sounds, but yeah, the first mobility and the hospitality, um, which is, you know, something I think the great restaurants, bars, cafes, pubs um, also have you know, in their business or, you know, put, put uh, a strong attributes of their business where they are personable and dealing with people and trying to make their experience as great as possible while also delivering a product or a service. It's not a simple set of rules, is it? I mean, I really feel like you're, I want to say the word swindler, but I mean it in the best way possible. And that's, I think you look, <laughs> I know I was going to say hustler and I thought that sounded even worse, but I think you're somebody that looks for opportunity and looks for possibilities and is always kind of got little ideas in the back of their mind. You just, as somebody that doesn't sit on your laurels and hang out and go, yeah, I'm in a pretty comfy spot. I'm just going to do this. But I think that that also must make for somebody that is um, perfect in this kind of position because, like you said, you know hospitality, you know kind of what it's like to be on the buying side, but then you are somebody that loves food and dining, so you really understand kind of what it means to take people out. And you've got to really find that balance between looking after your the people buying the wine and then also the people that are selling the wine. So you're really that halfway point between all making it work, aren't you? Yeah, it's, it's something I've thought about a lot. And some advice I was given very early on in my career was, you know, we work in this industry because we love it. If you can't you know, break bread with somebody on the most basic level. Um, you probably shouldn't be in business with them. Now, you know, business is business and pleasure is pleasure. But I love the fact that my my job and, you know, it, it bridges my lifestyle and um, my passions, which are, you know, food and wine and travel um, and things like that. But, yeah, it's uh, there's a lot of great wine out there. You know, so why do you need to buy wine from me? Or why do, why do you want to buy wine from me? Um as I mentioned before, I'm really just the conduit. I'm really lucky that I get to work with some great producers from, you know, local affordable through to, you know, uh, top end of town kind of price points in the likes of Cloudburst in Margaret River. Um, but really, you know, sharing the stories and or conveying what that brand message is and knowing our product. Like I said, we're wine people first. And I think that's one of our um, probably strongest attributes in the business that we A, we have great wine and B, that we are wine people and we get the wines. We're not here reading a, uh, a script as to what this wine is and how it's made. Um, and everybody's different. You know, plenty of our customers, uh, some of our customers, plenty of our customers have got great wine palettes. God, we're so lucky who we work with. But a lot of our customers buy on, on price, on, on label, you know, image in, in a retail context. Um, there's customers we sell wine to that don't even taste wine or drink wine. So it really is, I suppose, trying to find what fits best for each individual, but 
you know, it, I, I think it always has to come back to the quality of wine itself. Um, and I don't want to work with that if it's not. I'm very fortunate, like I said, that we have some really great brands that are doing great things uh, and we believe in those products. Like I said, there is a lot of great wine out of there, but the, the combination of hospitality, personability and then product, I think, has probably been the, the three most important bits or keys to success we've had to date and, and the things that we lean into um, continually knowing what that they work. As you go about selecting someone to represent, adding to your portfolio, what are the things that you're looking for? Quality. Um, quality v price is, is relevant, especially, you know, in this, in this current climate. Um, sustainability within their business. Um, sustainability you know, comes in many ways, shapes and forms from, um, but, you know, people like Dr. Irina at Inkwell and, and what she's doing, she's just been published in Jancis, contributing um, specific to new world sustainability in business. And she talks about economic sustainability as well as environmental sustainability and what they're doing. Um, but they, they've got to care about what they're doing, obviously. Um, the wines have to be good. Um, they have to want to get better. They have to want to improve or they, they must be, I suppose, on a journey or a mission to achieve great things. You know, you mentioned before resting on laurels. Um, you know, it, it's a moving target, I feel, and mm. I like the fact and I'm lucky that a lot of the guys that I do work with um, are constantly evolving what they're doing and pushing boundaries. And, hey, sometimes, you know, it doesn't stick or sometimes you don't win. Um, but I think, you know, learnings, good learnings come from these from these things and it's nice to have something fresh all the time. You know, we're not selling sliced bread or two is new. Uh, and a lot of our producers think, well, pretty much all of our producers think the same way, which we're, yeah, we're thrilled to, to be able to work with. Do you have to think a little bit about, you know, where, you know, in having a balanced portfolio when someone approaches you, how that's going to affect the other people if they're from a similar region or they have similar wines? Are you looking at kind of what's going to be competitive in your portfolio and what might piss somebody off in, in terms of kind of you know, challenging or being in competition with them? Yeah, um, definitely. We work, you know, our, our producers do what they do. You know, we certainly try and pass on feedback as to what the market's, um, you know, feeding us and what we're learning out there, what we're seeing. But we're pretty lucky that from most regions, uh, we just have one producer and we really love what they do. A few regions, we have a couple of producers, but they're very different stylistically. Um, if you look at the Hunter, for instance, you know what Angus Vinden does against Aaron Mercer, you know, they're, they're chalk and cheese, um, or sorry, polar opposites in, in in what they're aspiring to do as, as brands, as styles. But yeah, by and large, yes, because we don't want to have a book full of, you know, Variety X at 20 bucks because we'd just be cannibalising our own sales. So we really try and work with people that we think are really great representations um, of that region, of that variety, and we like their style and all that they stand for. I think that's clear when you look at the portfolio because I think it can be easy. I imagine if you've got people wanting to be represented and just adding, but when they get too big sometimes portfolios, it, it, you know, the message can be lost and I think that, it can be quite challenging to try and figure out like who are you and what does that portfolio represent, whereas everyone in yours has a place, has a reason for being there and you get a sense of your business from the people that you represent. No, that's great. Thank you. I'm glad you get it. That's what we're trying to do. <laughs> um, and the other side of that is, that, you know, there's people we've worked with for years and done really well with, there's people we've worked with and, and hasn't gone so well. 
um, and there's people that we've just agreed to, you know, shake hands and part ways. That's that's all part of it. But mm. um, yeah, we really try and find, I suppose, champions of you know certain varieties within the regions. We think that they grow best. And okay. yeah, like I said, we, we we do say no to people. We're fortunate that we have people coming to us every now and then, um, and some great people. But we're also you know pretty loyal to who we work with, um, and proud of the brands we represent. You know, some of these guys like going back to. The Gilberts, for instance, I think we started with them in 2010 when I was still um, working as a SOM and studying and sort of, yeah, peddling on the side. I was about to say hustling then, but I held back, but there it is. (laughs) (laughs) They need a little hustle, no doubt, sometimes. (laughs) Um, I want to shine a little light on Maker Master Merchant, which uh, was released in January 2021. Give me a little rundown about that exciting venture. Yeah, um, started in the times of COVID. Um, I feel that I am not always as creative as I'd like to be, um, you know, driving the sales-based business. Um, I toyed around with having some wine made for uh, sort of a house brand um, with Ned Goodwin um, and we, we, we essentially made a sort of a bespoke range of house wines for a hotel group we were consulting to, writing their lists and doing their education and training procurement bits. And that was, you know, it, it was cool. It was a great little project, but it didn't, um, we, we didn't have any contact with it. It didn't really, we didn't have any involvement in making the wines. Yes, we did the bench blends, but we didn't, we weren't involved from, from you know, from fruit through to bottle, which is something that we wanted to, to have more control over and, and for it to be a more genuine product. Um Coming into COVID, I realised my business was uh, just over 90% on-premise focused and we had, I think it was about 7% on-premise when the first COVID happened um, and realised that I didn't have much that was, I suppose, built for uh, potential scalability in terms of volume in the off-premise sense. Um, was started running into a guy called Aaron Mercer that I actually went to school with in the Hunter Valley and, you know, now uh, of, of Mercer Wines in the Hunter, but great, great winemaker um, doing some really cool things. And conversation came about over a few beers and a few months and before you knew it, we um, agreed to, yeah, go about making, a, I suppose, a retail-focused um, brand that was, you know, affordable, local and organic were kind of the three, the three pillars um, of that business. And, yeah, a few years on, um, it's all ticking along pretty well. There's been a lot of good learnings from the experience, but um, the wines are getting good coverage in, yeah, independent retailers um, and on-premise venues around Sydney and a few in regional areas as well. But, yeah, it was a nice creative process to be involved in from, you know, working with finding the right artists we wanted to work with and having something designed um, for our label artwork and, and going about it quite differently because we're not an estate brand. Um, We don't own any vineyards. You know, Aaron makes the wine. Um, Ned helps with blending and education, training and all those little bits and I sell them. And we actually didn't have a name for the business. Um, I think it was actually Aaron that came about with changing the the, the title of an email thread to make a master merchant because that's kind of what made the most sense. And we didn't uh, come up with anything else and it kind of stuck and off it went. So, yeah, here we are. 
I like that. There seems to be these uh, natural thread to things that just happen and uh, I suppose that's really nice because we can't control everything and it's sometimes nice to know that there's things in play or if you have a somewhat of a relaxed attitude sometimes something will come up. So I love that how that's evolved and I love the time it came out because it was a real time of change and, you know, I thought, well, if this wine doesn't do well, who will do well because you've got some amazing people behind it with um, a lot of creativity, uh, a lot of knowledge, a lot of wisdom. Um, and yeah, I'm thrilled. Three great people doing some delicious juice and it's, it's been very successful, which is really nice to see. I want to ask you, um, you do get a few perks of the job. Well, being that it's your, your business, but you do get some nice moments where you get to go out and spend some time with, uh, the producers. Have you got a, you know, a, pinnacle or just a memory that really sticks with you of where you've had to kind of pinch yourself and thought this is actually my job this is what I do um yeah there's a couple there um I was lucky to travel over to Italy last month um we've been importing a brand Catina La Rosa out of Barbaresco uh, and we got to stay um on their farm uh, in Tristella, just next to Rio Sordo, which is their sort of monopole to Barbaresco. And, yeah, watching the sunsets through the Alps there in peak summer as, you know, they were um, testing fruit and whatnot every day. You know, we were, they, were all, they were, I think, they were a few weeks off picking when we left. But that was a pretty great experience. Otherwise, one of the most memorable ones would have been when I first met Will Berliner from Cloudburst. It's a bit of a... Um, a bit of an interesting story, but I didn't have my licence at the time. I, I, I've had a, a Vespa or a motorbike for about 15 years, but only got my car licence about five or six years ago. And my girlfriend at the time, I sort of said, hey, you know, I've got to go out to Margaret River and meet this producer. It's really exciting wines and he's a pretty kooky dude and I can't wait to go and meet him and spend some time with him. And essentially he was vetting me to see if, you know, if I was going to be good enough to, to represent his wines. Um, so he flew over there and I got sick on the first night, I got sick on the plane. I woke up in Perth and I was sick as a dog, like, and went down to Margaret River and met him. And, uh, you know, you know, you know the wines and the story and you know, there's no way, uh, it's just a, a vineyard in a paddock in the middle of nowhere. But I, I was all hopped up on, what was it, um, Codril, which I, ne which I never take. So I could actually, you know, so my nose would stop running and so my eyes would open and so I could actually talk to this guy for three days. But he rolled in in his ute. You know, cool as a cucumber, um, is a very uh, affable, warm, sincere man, um, as you know. And we basically sat on the back of his ute with a box of Riedels and a bunch of cloudburst wines in the vineyard. Um, and, yeah, it, it was it was pretty alarming. And the girlfriend at the time knew while we were there and, you know, she was driving around. And we also had a, you know, a nice weekend away, even though that I was pretty much asleep when we weren't with Will. You know, it, was, it wasn't just one meeting. It was sort of three days of vetting me um, to check that I was good for it. But she, yeah, when, when he told her the price of the wines, she, yeah, projectile spat the wine, um, almost hit him as well out. But uh, that was a pretty great moment of, yeah, just sitting in this little, you know, uh, the Garden of Eden, essentially, the vineyard is, is, is something else. But that was one of those moments and, um, it's, you know, I think some of Australia's greatest wines and I'm, yeah, absolutely thrilled to be able to work with them and with Will. 
Yeah, I've got to get Will on the podcast. That's a very good reminder. Thank you. But um, it's I think that most people when they heard the price of those wines had that kind of visceral reaction until you taste them and then you start to get it and go, holy crap, these wines are beyond imaginings. They are, they are some of the most incredible wines and uh uh, you know, these days you can get, uh, you know, a vertical of every wine produced. Uh, I think he's got a great kind of, you know, seller selection and that's pretty rare too. So amazing wines if you haven't seen them. But I brought that up because, um, well, I brought up the, the fact that you have some amazing um, opportunities in your line of work. I think more because when you go on a wine trip as a buyer or um, you go to a cellar door, it's always a lovely experience, but you are getting kind of a tailored experience that is telling a story, whether it's just the people at the cellar door and how well or not well they do that and communicate the story. But you go into the homes of people, you stay with them, you hang out with their pets, you know, you sleep in their spare room, and then you occasionally get to take people along for that ride. And I think that, you know, they're, whatever kind of person you are, you can't get along in your job if you aren't kind of sincere. And I think that, you know, you have to really kind of understand the people you're working with. And and then when you know them that well, it must just be so natural to want to talk about who they are and share, share with them with the world, because you really know them very well, don't you? Yeah. And, and that's really important. And back to that you know, comment I made earlier on, if you don't want to break bread with them, you shouldn't be doing business with them. It's, you know, we, we choose this lifestyle because it is a lifestyle. Um, and I think it's really important to know the story um, from the ground up and to know the people, you know, to know what works for them, what doesn't work for them, and you know, what they want. Um, and I think you can get a deeper sense of that outside of the context of just a meeting, you know, a, a, just a business transaction. Um, I'm, yeah, like I said, I'm lucky that a lot of the people I work with have become really good friends and, yeah, I stay in their house. Um, I've got a spare room slash sunroom in my place and, and most of the winemakers stay there when they're in town. Um, it also helps if you're, you know, doing trade all day and then off to an event or something at night just to be, uh, you know, in closer proximity to them. But, yeah, really lucky that I get along with everybody well and many of them I consider great mates. God, I got to marry one of them um, in 2020 after I introduced him to his now wife who was a mate of mine. Um, but, yeah, very lucky that they're a really cool mix of people and that we share, I suppose, uh, I didn't. I couldn't get the legal celebrant qualification in the time frame I had allotted to me. But uh, I got to do all the. I got to do everything apart from the the five minutes or the ten minutes that the legal celebrant stepped up behind me and did that. There was only seven people at the wedding. It was between the two lockdowns. That's so cool. Uh, I think that you know when I asked you earlier, like, what? How do you go about selecting a producer for your portfolio? I knew that probably the underlining kind of unsaid word from you would probably be, well, they can't be a dickhead because everyone in your portfolio are good humans. They're like at their core good humans. And I think that, you know, I was like, you probably won't say that, but uh, I reckon that that's definitely on the cards. No, we have a strong no dickhead policy. Yeah, that's really important. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I want to ask you um, in terms of what your palate's like and what, you know, gives you the most joy when you're allowed to have a drink on your own terms. Uh, if you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life, what would they be and why, AJ? Yeah, that's tough. Um, yeah, okay, I'd probably have some Campari. I can't live without Campari. Um, whether it's mixed up with something or just over ice with a bit of soda in it, um, I find myself drinking less 
less and less beer as I get older. I do love a beer on a hot day, but I, I'm not one to go out and drink more than, say, two or three beers. Um, Campari would have to be up there. I'd have to say Chardonnay. Um, all shapes, sizes and price points, um, you know, both made locally and abroad. But, yeah, we do such great things with Chardonnay here, whether it's, you know, you're down the coast and you're going into some BYO or getting some fish and chips on the beach and you need something for 20 bucks at the local Bottle O pub, BWS, whatever it is, um, or whether you've got some cash to burn and you want to head to the top of the tree. Um, and I'd probably say Nebbiolo. Um, really finding myself moving away from loads and loads of new oak um, in reds that I'm drinking. Sort of just, yeah, really, really craving natural tannin or pursuing natural tannin. And I don't think there's a great variety that has a better tannin, natural tannin structure to my palate with the acidity that, that would be Neb. Um, again, all shapes and sizes and price points. But yeah, whether it's, you know, frisky, lean Neb, chilled down uh, on a hot day or some risotto all the way through to, you know, the great wines of, of Piedmont. And also there's some really exciting Nebs being made in Australia, I'd probably say, namely around that Beechworth area. There's some really cool things coming up, which I'm enjoying. Such a good wine. Uh, Nebbiolo is just, I mean, I don't drink it enough because I can't afford it, but... Uh, Amazing. And, uh, yep, after being in Italy, I'd be disappointed if you didn't say that. I'd say you haven't done the hard work that you needed to over there, so I'm glad to hear. All that, that, tannin, all that tannin in peak summer was hard going, but, no, it was a great experience and, yeah, a few, few new Barolo brands coming out. If someone's got to do it, it's yeah. you, mate. <laughs> Thank you. I've loved getting to know you a little bit more. Um, you always have something that surprises me. You've got so many stories. You've lived a pretty damn amazing life and uh, you continue to. So thanks so much for spending the time to catch up. I hope we get to do it in person soon and have a glass of Nebbiola together. Sounds great. Thanks, Shante. Appreciate your time. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Over a Glass Pod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.